Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 256 being recorded on Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, as you know, one of our favorite topics here on the Jason and Scott Show is Amazon, their culture and different business strategies. Tonight on the show, we are really thrilled and excited to welcome Colin Breyer. He's an ex-Amazonian and co-author of the brand spanking new book, Working Backwards. Welcome to the show, Colin. Oh, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Happy to be here. Uh, we're excited to have you. Uh, Scott, in particular, is a huge Amazon fanboy, so this is a uh, he's trying to be cool, but this is a thrill for him. Um and so, Colin, uh, Scott introduced you as an ex-Amazonian, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how, how you came to Amazon and, and uh, uh, what you did there and then, you know, what you're doing now. Sure. I, I um, moved out to Seattle in uh, 1990 and worked at Oracle for about five years. I was uh, a consultant road warrior. And after five years, I realized I didn't even know what Seattle looked like. So I left Seattle and, and started a company with with two other uh, folks, uh, Charlie Bell and Kevin Miller. And what we were doing at the time, so this was in 95, we were helping companies uh, take all of their internal data and and help them expose it on what was then the nascent World Wide Web. And most companies, you know, were struggling to do that. And we worked with a bunch of larger companies out here in Seattle, Microsoft, uh, Boeing, um, and then some companies like TRW outside of Seattle, and one of the small companies we worked with was called Amazon.com. And uh, we realized that the, that was a really special place. So, uh, you know, to, you, from the moment we stepped in through the door. And so we uh, decided to join Amazon. And that was so I joined Amazon in March of 1998. And Amazon was only a bookseller uh, just based in the U.S. And there were probably about 100 people in the corporate department and 500 people in, uh, in total in, in customer service in the fulfillment centers. So it was a, a, but, you know, very special place. And you could tell that something, something was going on. It wasn't sure if it was going to work yet, but things are moving fast and, you know, customers were validating what we were doing and uh, uh, the press and, and pundits sometimes agreed. And a lot of times they didn't, but it was uh, fun to see Amazon transform from, they did, $147 million in revenue when I started to, and now this last quarter was $125 billion in, in revenue. So it's been fun to be part of that transformation. Yeah, they've had to stretch the the cells on the Excel spreadsheet a little bit since you started. Yes. Um, and 100 employees. So I'm trying to think, would you have gotten a desk that was made out of a door or or did you have actual furniture by then? Nope. I had a door desk and, you know, you still get door desks. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to my the email address was just Colin, too. So it was you know, a pretty small place then. That's that's very cool. And then uh, you you did a couple different roles at Amazon, but one of them in particular uh, is is a pretty cool role. And you might have, if I I'm going to pretend like I didn't read your book, but I did. 
you were the second person in the in that role, right? Yes. Uh, so I started out in the software group and worked there for about five years. And then uh, I was Jeff Bezos's, the, internally, the role is called the shadow or technical assistant. And externally, it's it's more akin to a chief of staff. And so I got to, uh, spend, was very, very fortunate to have spent uh, 10 hours a day with with Jeff participating in the meetings and uh, you know seeing how he thought and and was planning on on building a, a very large organization to be what he uh, termed Earth's most customer centric company and uh, it wasn't just technical issues we I got to experience everything from the fulfillment centers legal PR. Uh, the commercial uh, group, the retail groups, and and also you know some pretty deep dive technical issues too. So I was very fortunate to have done that. And then I sp- after that I, I went to IMDb, the Internet Movie Database, uh, as their COO, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Amazon. Yeah, um, and as I understand it, the 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 um, technical advisor primarily entails training up Jeff in tennis to get him ready for celebrity tennis tournaments. Is that true? <laughs> No, that was a very small part of uh, my job. It was less than a day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that that was um, an interesting uh, adventure. But really, that what the job entailed was was two things. You, you know, when Jeff he asked if I wanted to be his next technical advisor, and you know, I did rather than jump at the opportunity, I said, "Can I uh, take the weekend to think about it?" But first, can you please tell me uh, what? Um, success looks like in this role because it's it's too important of a role and I, um, to take if I, if I don't think I can be successful in this role. And he said, well, the first thing is, you know, just to help uh, Jeff was to help him be a better CEO and, you know, making sure that the right issues and, and teams get in front of Jeff and, and, and I could go places in the company that he couldn't. But then the second part is the way he put it is uh, we want to be able to model how, how each of us think so after this role ends, when you go somewhere else in the company, that um, you know, to have a pretty good idea of of his vision and you know core tenets and leadership principles and and be able to move into the company. So it is a rotating role, and I was in that role for about two years. That that's amazing. And the pre- your predecessor in that role was Andy Jassy, wasn't he? Yes, uh, Andy was the first uh, technical advisor, and uh, you know I relied on his his advice and counsel you know, to tell me what I was getting into. And uh, you you can see the phenomenal job Andy's done s- since then. Um, you know there aren't too many people who get a, a chance to to do this role, so I realize I'm I'm very lucky to have been been one of those people. And you know so one of the reasons uh, Bill and I decided to write this book was to talk about some of the principles and processes uh, that really are, you know, the secret sauce of what makes Amazon work. Cool. Let's, uh, let's dig into the book. The, the, the book is split into kind of two parts. So you have the first section, which is being Amazonian. And then the second one, which is kind of case studies of, of applying that called invention machine at work in the being Amazonian section. Um, you guys go into a lot of my favorite topics, and sadly, we only have you for an hour. Uh, I feel like I could uh, essentially just talk about this forever. But you, you talk about the Amazon leadership principles, um, the six-page note that is the the kind of the keystone of every meeting, the bar raiser program. Um, but I, th- I thought it would be appropriate maybe to start at the title concept, which is working backwards. Uh, give an overview of what that means and um, you know maybe – 
uh, an example. Um, don't use AWS because we'll ask about that later. But a, okay. an example, uh, maybe a, a of of you know, how that gets used inside of Amazon. Sure. So working backwards, it's a very specific process used at Amazon uh, to to look at ideas, to vet them, and decide whether to bring them to market, be it a feature or opening up a new business. And if if you have to remember one thing about the working backwards process, it's this. It's that you start with the desired customer experience, and then you work backwards from that. It sounds simple. It's actually pretty hard to do, and it's it's different from how a lot of organizations make decisions. A lot of organizations use what's called the skills forward approach. They look at things and ask questions such as, what are our core competencies? You know, what are, what are we good at? What are our competitors doing? And how can we nudge into this adjacent market? If you know, if we get ten percent market share, what's that going to look like? And you know, a, a SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, is a typical analysis that uh, companies use to decide what to do next. But often, a word that doesn't get mentioned in that analysis, at least up front, is the word customer. So Amazon decided to invert that and, and, and say, we want to make sure that the customer is front and center from the very germ of an idea. And so Amazon uh, developed this working backwards process. And the, the primary tool that Amazon uses for the working backwards process is the press release and uh, frequently asked questions document. So it's a type of narrative called the PRFAQ document. So the, if anyone has an idea, and again, this works for something as small as a new feature on the iOS app, or if Amazon is deciding to get into a whole new line of business or move into a brand new geography, the first thing that a, the, the person who has the idea or the team that has the idea does is they write a one-page press release. So it has to be one page or less, if, which forces you to, to really crisply uh, define the idea. And the press release has a couple different components. One is it clearly defines what is the customer problem you are trying to solve. And, you know, and that also you can take a couple of iterations. The, the next part is you have to explain to the customer why they might be interested in using the feature or buying the, the, the product. And then you, you go on in that press release. You, typically, you can use a quote from a customer or if it's, a, it's something for a partner, the partner talks about why, um, how this actually solved their problem. And, if you, and so this is an iterative process. Once you write your press release, you read the press release. And if you don't want to go out and buy that product or use that uh, feature, the service, um, you stop and you rewrite the press release until you get it right. And then the, the next step in the process is the FAQ process. And you can break that up into two primary uh, components, an external FAQ and an internal FAQ. And the external FAQ are think questions that you ask and answer that would typically go to customers or, or the press. Uh, how much is this product going to cost? Um, why should I use this product versus what's out there on the market? Why should I change my behavior and what's in it for me if I'm going to go through some extra steps to go use this product or service? The internal FAQ is uh, a set series of questions and answers about what are the tough problems that the company is going to have to solve and, and how are they going to organize uh, to, to actually get together and solve these problems to bring this idea to market. So some examples there could be, how, can, can, how and can we build this product with a bill of materials that's less than $200 to get out to the market at the desired price point? 
They can be technical issues. What are some unknown technical problems that we need to solve? And how are we going to organize and, and, and approach and solve these problems? Legal, financial issues, or privacy issues, or if it's a sales you know, B2B, this requires a sales force. Do we um, use a direct sales force or are we going to partner with someone? And there, this is all an iterative process. And um, a lot of ideas don't actually make it through the end of the working backwards process. And the ones that do have gone through many, many iterations of, of uh, meetings where people weigh in, hey, you're missing a, a key fact, you know, uh, so let's go ask and answer that and come back next time. And it, this is by design, uh, by the way, because it's it's meant to one ensure that the customer is is not forgotten, but two it it, it saves time because it saves you from uh, moving in the wrong direction. You know, people talk about uh, speed a lot is important, but velocity I think is 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 important, and velocity is the vec you know the vector of speed and direction. So this helps you make sure that you're moving in the right direction at the beginning and conserving what's typically. A company's bottleneck resources, which are, are technical resources. The so it seems so. Then you've got this idea factory, right? And everyone's creating these things. And I imagine they're all pretty good. Then at some point, someone's going to have to decide. Like there, there seems like there's always going to be an abundance of them, even the ones that that you know, even given that some don't make it through. So then, does does Bezos just essentially say, all right, here's the top 100 we're going to draw here. Like who sorts these things and prioritizes them? How does that work? Well, it's typically it goes to who's ever controlling the the set of resources that need, um, you know, that are needed in order to get this done. And for a very large uh, uh, initiative or what Amazon calls a one-way door, once you do it, you, you know, it's very expensive and difficult to roll back. That will float up much higher in the organization. But it could be, you know, as, as simple as we want three people to go work on this new feature on, on the website. So whoever controls those, whatever the appropriate management uh, level is that controls those resources, that's where it gets done. And the, you're, you're right in that, you know, the very most people have good ideas. <laughs> it's just, is this idea worth doing? Is it big enough? And is it, um, and is it worth doing now? Those are the, the types of questions that you have to ask given the resources and, and constraints that the, the company has. So for l- very large projects, it goes up to, you know, the, the S team, the, which is Jeff's, you know, direct reports, the management team, but most of them are, are smaller than that because Amazon usually works in separable teams and so who's ever controlling those uh, single-threaded separable teams typically makes that decision. Yeah, let's um, – so let's do an example, a simple one, and this is uh, Jason's favorite. Let's say Haas plants. He always used to use this one as something um, that Amazon, I guess, wouldn't do, and now you, now they do. <laughs> um, so so I have the idea to do house plants. I write a press release. Amazon now ships house plants, and I talk about how we have – they're, they arrive at your door fresh, uh, and you know a selection of thousands, and you know. But then, do I have to tell you like how do you size that opportunity versus I don't know, you know, B two B cogs or, or widgets and cogs? Yeah. So uh, the, you first of all have to. One of the questions is in the the fact you uh, have to address what's the TAM, the total addressable market. So how big is this idea? Um, you know, some typical questions would be, 
we don't have live things in our fulfillment center right now. How do we handle, you know, how do we handle that? And, um, and you know, what, how long can they stay in the, the fulfillment center before they need attention? You know, electronics depreciate, you know, uh, some of them appreciate 10% a month plants die. If you don't water them, I would, so, you know, you'd have to address issues like that. How are we going to keep our inventory alive before we get it out to customers? And then, um, but in terms of, it's a great question about how do you balance that with a, a, a B2B, you know, completely unrelated project. And that, that prioritization is really tricky. And um, it's tricky for a couple of reasons, because even at the, the PR FAQ stage, you don't know really how big of an idea this is because you don't know customer adoption. That's um, very tricky to predict, even if you have a great idea. Um, and uh, you don't know how long it's going to take to build and deploy the the technology or the you know the heavy lifting infrastructure to handle plants um, you know, in this example. And so Amazon, a lot of times, what they do instead of made, making the prioritization decision, they take a step back and make an, a resource allocation decision for you know given areas. And for for this one, that would probably have been done in a yearly planning cycle to say, we are going to devote for our B2B efforts, we're going to devote this many people or, you know, these many organizations or groups are going to, they're very large now, but are going to focus on B2B issues. And here's the, you know, new category expansion for the the retail business. And if you do that up front, and then you have your, uh, the, the teams are at that point separated, then you don't have to, um, it's hard to prioritize between apples and oranges. And so Amazon doesn't want, didn't want to make that prioritization decision because you often get that wrong. And so just taking a step back and use a different decision-making tool, which is resource allocation, and you do that, you don't have to do that every project. You can do that once a year or once a quarter and then balance resources as more data comes in. Yeah, and then, um, and then what's the, so, all right, I'm in the B2B group and I've got my, you know, is it, What's the unit of allocation uh, for resources? Is it people hours? Is it dollars? Is it gummy bears? You know, I've seen people do all these really weird things where they're kind of like, you know, you get this many, uh, you know, seats on a train if it's engineering. Um, How does, is there such a thing at Amazon like that? Well, there are, you know, there are some constraints and, you know, setting uh, hard constraints at the beginning of a planning process, actually, it typically saves iteration. You know, if you say, hey, send me all any ideas you want, your ask is going to be much bigger than you could ever do. And so setting some constraints about here's the free cash flow that we anticipate we're going to have to invest back in the business. Some of it are just you. You may want to do something, but you may not be able to hire a hundred software engineers in the in the time you need to hire you know, those people. So you could say, "Here's our staffing, and here's our hiring rate for the year." So this we have what we have at this point in terms of of technical resources. But it it so it's a combination of what it, it's resource constraints. In some cases, it could be dollars. In some cases, it could be bottleneck resources like software engineers or data scientists, or it could be you know fulfillment center capacity. So you have to know what your bottleneck constraints are, and that that would be how you um, make those types of decisions. So in my plant example, I'm going to say I need you know, I need the retail team to kick in and create a category for me. And I'm going to need three developers to add all the attributes for house plants. And I'm going to need 
a photographer to take pictures of them. And I'm going to need a greenhouse outside every fulfillment center. And I'm going to need a, I don't know, a, a what is a, a plant person to, you know, an expert. It, is it kind of like that? Like some of them I'm, I'm drawing resources from other teams and others I'm hiring or, or how does that get expressed in those, that process you were talking about? So for, for some of them, we'll touch other, other teams and, uh, at Amazon, we talked about loosely coupled teams, not completely um, separate and independent. So there are some shared resources. And, you know, especially for smaller organizations, you're not going to have uh, a legal rep, uh, you know, that, for each of the small groups. You, you'll kind of share those um, those resources across there. But you would need to identify here are all the things that we need to get done in, you know, in terms of transportation, logistics, uh, design, um, and and for the sh- those shared the pools of resources that you are going to have to um, you know get some of those allocated for that period of time, uh, but that having been said, if the issue if the the idea is big enough, um, you know you you can justify getting those resources on your own. And one of the the things that um, one a great um, frequently asked question is that's been asked several times at Amazon is. Um, what things are outside of your control um, do you wish that you had under your control and how are you going to organize and how would you organize to, you know, to bring those things under your control? And that's a continuous process. You know, if it's, you're always short design resources, for instance, and you work to um, get design resources on, on, on your own team somehow, if, if that's the right answer, or if that central group, you know, needs to grow or double in size, you know, there, there's not, there's often not one um, universally right answer for every company, but knowing what things that you're, it, it, it's, Amazon wants people to be control in, in control of their own destiny. And so asking what things are outside of your control that, that, and, and, uh, because it's hard to ask people to be accountable when you don't give them resources to to get things done. So Amazon tries to make sure that that happens. Uh, awesome. And uh, Colin, you're being like really polite by humoring Scott, but the reality is his one pager would never get off the ground because if the, if the one pager was Amazon now ships plants, that's not very exciting. The one pager should be Amazon just shipped its billionth plant. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. You have to. It, ha- it does have to be a, a you know a big idea to work. You know. In, yeah, I think that's increasingly true, them. right? As yeah. as as Amazon becomes a bigger enterprise, those those uh, uh, new new ventures have to have to be bigger to be relevant. They do have to be bigger to be relevant. One thing Amazon is uh, is a bit unique is they're patient. You, know, you can plant seeds, so some of these things take years to to grow into something big and you have to um yeah you, you, jeff put this in one of his shareholders that you have to have the institutional memory to know what it's like to go from you know a one million dollar business to ten million dollars to 50 million over a relatively short period of time that's not going to move the needle in a 125 billion dollar quarterly uh business but given enough time and if the total addressable market is big enough then it is worth doing, and you do need to be excited about those types of things and pay attention and to them. And, and, and you know, cult, yeah. I guess the seed analogy is probably apropos since we're talking about house plants. But um, Amazon is patient, and if it's big enough, they'll wait and, and work to get it done. Yep, and that's the paradox, right? Is which of those acorns is going to become the next mighty oak? Yes. Um, the 
So I want to pivot a little bit. The if we, if we didn't spell it out up front, um, the the book is re- really a, a a tool um, to give some insight uh, into how Amazon organizes um, its its teams and runs its business and and uh, um, the the structures and frameworks that Amazon has in place to be shockingly innovative in spite of their now tremendous size and success. Um, and you present it in a way to try to uh, help others decide if and how they would implement some or all of these things in their own organization. So it, 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 it's sort of a, uh, a business manual, if you will. Um, and uh, you, you kind of go through a bunch of stuff, uh, the leadership principles, which I think there's 14 leadership principles now, um, the bar raiser program, which uh, Scott and I have had several bar raisers on the on the show as guests, um, which is uh, Amazon's hiring process. Um, but one of the things that comes up a lot in the book and that you've referenced a couple of times already tonight uh, is this concept of single threaded, separable teams um, and sometimes uh, referred to as the like two pizza teams, for example. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, because I think you were there while that uh, sort of before that that philosophy was fully embraced and as it was implemented. Can you talk a little bit about um, how how that came to be and how how that has uh, served as a advantage for Amazon? Yeah, sure, sure. I can do that. And, you know, the, the, the areas that you mentioned that one of the reasons we wrote the book was because a lot of this work is, you know, it's under the tip of the iceberg. It's things that people don't see, but uh, and you know, people ask always ask how many uh, Echo devices are sold this quarter, or how many Prime members are there going to be. And while that may be interesting, it's not that helpful to most organizations. And and you know, we felt that Amazon had made some significant advances in the field of management science. And that, that's why we tried to put all of these concepts t- together to say, here's how you can take a small organization and use some of these principles. Some of them were inspired and, you know, stood on the shoulders of other companies before us. But um, so we, we tried to organize them in a way that's useful and helpful for the reader. And in terms of separable single threaded leadership, that one was a journey. Uh, you know, for instance, writing narratives, you can just say we're going to switch from slides to narratives and and make that uh, change, which is what Amazon did. You may stumble a little bit and it takes a while to write great narratives, but that that's an easy change. Figuring out how to get to this single, um, you know, separable single threaded leaders was a multi-year journey. And, uh, you know, when I started at Amazon, you know, I started in the software group and and. Amazon was growing so fast, but it was already so large that there weren't any, there were very few commercial software applications that you could buy to help solve the problems that we were trying to solve. We were already well beyond um, the tolerances of most commercial software. So we had to uh, build and, and build fast just in order to keep the lights on. And, and, and this is in addition to uh, opening up a new geographies, so internationalizing the code base, and uh, you know, moving into these different categories, which you know they have different attributes. So you got to you have to change how what search looks like, what the order pipeline looks like. If you want to do apparel, you need to have size variations like size and color. You know, books don't have variations, so it was very easy. But we realized that we were adding a whole bunch of people and we weren't moving all that much faster. And even worse, we were spending more time coordinating than actually doing. 
And, you know, so that ratio is, was getting out of sync. And one of the things that uh, Jeff is, Prezos is particularly good about, is you can take a look at a trend and then project it out. I mean, what is this going to look like five years from now, seven years from now? And the prognosis was not good. Um, we had a tangled uh, um, code base and, you know, it, it was all one executable, even at one point for the website, uh, it was called Overdose. But, um, and so that meant you had, a you know, a couple hundred software engineers working and stepping on each other's toes. Someone would change something that you didn't even know and it would break your stuff or, or vice versa. And then if you wanted to get something done, you often would have to cajole uh, another group to say, hey, can you work on this? Uh, you own this library. And so how can you um, change some of these things? And we realized um, that what, so we had a huge technical problem. We also had an organizational problem. You know, those same, the same dependencies existed on the organizational side. You'd have to go um, ask for resources from the design team or from the fulfillment center team and to figure out how to, to get things done. And a lot of companies, what they would do is they would build better processes and you know build solutions for collaborating and communicating. And Jeff did said just the opposite. He said, I, I would like to have a, an environment at Amazon where we don't have to collaborate and communicate. And uh, you know, we have small separable teams. And we started off with the idea of a two pizza team. And uh, and the reason it was called two pizza teams is because two pizzas should be um, to be able to feed the entire team. So you couldn't really have a team. more. Scott than- and I would have to be individual teams at Amazon. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that was that exercise was left to the, the, the team owner. Um, but uh, how much pizza you would allocate. But um, engineers don't like to go on hungry stomachs. Um, so and so we tr- I tried separating these teams and. But in order to do that, you've got to change your technical architecture. And you also have to teach people how to be autonomous because in this prior environment, you know, you couldn't do anything really on your own. You had to go ask so many people that it was more top down. Here's the next thing we're doing. And, you know, so next quarter, you're going to be working on an initiative that you didn't even know about the quarter before. It was kind of disheartening. And uh, so we had to untangle the code base, build what's called the services based architecture a lot of people do that now, and you know it sounds easy. Um, didn't really exist at the time, so we we're also inventing a lot on our own on how to build this type of architecture. And then we had to separate the the, the decision making process for the org too. And so some roles in organizations, like a chief product officer, kind of go away because you want those product decisions to push them down to these small separable teams. You don't want to have one person or group make all of the the product decisions. And, you know, same thing with that engineering decision. So we had to decouple and distribute that. And, there were, you know, where I said it was a journey, that stuff was hard to do. We also had these things called fitness functions, which were basically composite metrics that would, a single metric, um, which is a composite of individual ones that would measure the progress of a team. And we realized we were spending whole bunch of time arguing over, you know, should it be 20% speed of the service and 60% revenue and, you know, and, you know, 20% something else. And it, it just was a waste of time. And we, so we, we stopped doing that in the fitness functions. And it turned out what was the, um, I would say the high order bit that made them work is they're separable teams, but a, a single threaded leader. And the best example I can give the, this at Amazon is there was a project called self-service order fulfillment. 
you know, we don't have exciting names uh, for some of these internal projects. But what that meant is we we knew that we wanted to expose some of our uh, functionality in the warehouse, the logistics centers, to third parties. And so we wanted to make it self-serve where people could uh, fulfill orders. And it was a good idea, but it never got done. And when I was working with Jeff as his technical advisor, we would do we would go in for an update on it. And it would be, yeah, we have to talk to these eight other teams and we're making some progress. The next update, six weeks later, there'd be a different person giving the update um, and a different leader. And it was kind of this rotating thing. And so finally, Jeff said, Bezos said to Jeff Wilkie, who was running the opposite group at the time, said, you need to assign a senior leader and, you know, to make this happen. And I want that person to work on self-service order fulfillment and nothing else but self-service order fulfillment. And so Jeff Wilkie chose Tom Taylor, who was a VP in the group. Tom had a big job at that time. And, you know, Jeff Wilkie went in and said, your big job is no longer your worry. You're going to work on a project that uh, um, is risky. It doesn't generate any revenue. And it's, it's, and you've got to go figure out how to do this. But Tom woke up every day figuring out how to organize and get this thing done. And not, you know, it was a year, year and a half later, it launched into what was now called fulfillment by Amazon. So very big business. And um, I'm not sure if that would have gotten done. It certainly wouldn't have gotten done at the time, you know, it, the time it took to build something that big without Tom and a single threaded leader. So Amazon took that and used that as a model to, for how to get other things done. Um, and uh, Dave Limp, who is the senior vice president of devices now at Amazon has a great quote. And he says, the best way to fail at inventing something is by making it someone's part-time job. Um, So that, that is um, an example of where, you know, Amazon just took a slightly different approach on how to organize around really working on the things that matter and that will drive the needle. That uh, I love that. And it, it, one of the things that's fascinating to me about it is it seems like it's worked both for, technical as a technical solve like it like you guys organize software that way and apis and and the service based architecture and all that and you're organizing the human resources that way as well and it seems to apply equally to both um i do have one question though it uh from what i hear the the one thing that doesn't seem like it jives perfectly with that is it seems like you hear a lot of people talk about the s team and and you know the biggest decisions in the company getting elevated to the s team and in a way, the S team sounds like kind of the antithesis of single threaded leaders. If there's, you know, like at the S team, it sounds like the the finance guy can critique the software approach or vice versa or those things. Am I misunderstanding how the, the S team works? The the way that the, the, the operating cadence at, at Amazon is there's a yearly planning cycle where you have some tent poles about just what are the constraints that the organization has to face. And, um, you know, each team then or group comes in with their, it's called their operating plan one, their OP1 plan about you know, what can they do. And they come in with a resource ask. And at some point, it, you, you do have to rationalize uh, if the ask is bigger than the individual resources, you do have to figure out how you're going to take a fixed pool of, of capital. So I think, you know, a, a comment we get a lot is, well, Amazon has unlimited capital and unlimited software engineers that can just appear magically when, whenever you need them at, at the door, whenever you need them. That's not the case there. And it's, it was actually, it was very difficult to get resources allocated to um, a project that you were working on. So there was some friction there, but it was by design. 
But um, what did not happen is there wasn't a lot of thrash after that, after you make that allocation. So here's our yearly plan. And rather than say what the team needs to do and how they're going to go do that, the team would commit to given this a set of resources that I now have for the upcoming year, here's what I'm, here's what I'm going to commit to. And here are the set of initiatives that I think are going to get me uh, to, you know, to achieve these goals. So um, you do, you, what, what I've seen, um, you know, some people go overboard with these separable teams at, and just make them totally autonomous. And, um, and I think that you need to come back at, you know, once a year, sometimes even once a quarter, just to check to make sure you're moving in the right in the right direction and staying true to what you, you know, a sanity check on are we making progress on on the goals, the company goals that we want. So there is a true a true up period, but it's 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 on a yearly basis for the most part in the operating cadence of Amazon. Well, that's it's interesting you run on these annual cycles, but let's say, I don't know, some earth shattering new thing happens in the middle of that cycle. What's the process for kind of, is there a, like in Scrum or, or Agile software, there's a way of kind of just saying, scrap everything, we're going to reorient. Is is that a thing at Amazon or no, you stick to these annual cycles and, and don't deviate? No, you you need to take a look at the data that comes comes in and adjust. And, uh, and so um, I don't know if I've ever seen a yearly plan executed a hundred percent, you know, exactly. If you were you to go back a year that every, everything happened the way that we thought it would, um, you have to move fast. You have to move with less information than you would like, you know, about 70, 80% of the information you have to, you know, to make the decision. So you also need to pay attention to what's going on and to be able to uh, adapt quickly. Um, you know, and there are some times where uh, you like Amazon prime, for instance, is a good example where, there are exceptions to the rule. Hey, we're going to go launch Amazon Prime. Uh, you know, Jeff said this in it was in October, and we're going to launch it by the end of the year. It was uh, you know not the biggest project Amazon did that year, but it, it was you know it was a substantial one, and it was a fairly short period of time. So there are exceptions to that rule, um, and you do need to you know to be agile. The the group though has committed to achieving certain goals that S team doesn't really tell them how they're going to go achieve those goals. So if something changes, the group, you know, the, the group in, in question adapts and they can say, Hey, I'm no longer going to work on project a because project B or this new project that I didn't even think of, you know, back in OP one comes in the fall um, is now worth doing. So I'm going to set these other things aside and you make that a, a exception. The, the planning tool is to help you make the right decisions, but if more information comes in over the year, to tell you that, hey, if you stick with this thing, you're going to make the wrong decision. You know, you change the plan. Got it. And then uh, so that's, that's been uh, super helpful to walk us through through those different principles. And then, uh, you know, the second half of the book, you, you I kind of think of them as case studies, and that's the invention machine at work. Um, I was going to ask you about AWS, but then it occurred to me, uh, I'll make it uh, your choice. So, so anything you want to talk about, what would be a good example for listeners of, you know, uh, in your in your memory of of how Amazon applied some of these things and and any fun stories in there are always always welcome. Yeah, we can. I mean, we can talk about AWS and uh, and so you know, kudos, huge kudos to Andy Jassy and his, and his team for inventing cloud computing. But uh, there are a couple of things that are I think notable about the evolution of AWS. 
So Andy, um, you know, there were signs before, well before um, S3 and EC2 and the queuing service uh, were, the, were the first three um, AWS services that came out. Well before that, there were signs that, hey, there's something going on here with web services. It's just a better way to build software and our internal software and, you know, engineers were using it. We were using it with third-party sellers and with the affiliate program. And Andy had uh, put this plan together and said, you know, there may be something here and we should adopt this, you know, a model and, and go try it. And, you know, Andy could have had any job that he wanted uh, at, at the company at this point. He had just spent, I think it was a year and a half working as Jeff's technical advisor. And he chose to go to, uh, you know, a non-existent business that had a um, high level of risk. We also didn't know where other companies were on the path of in- inventing cloud computing. We were looking at the same data that people like Microsoft, uh, Oracle, IBM, uh, you know, Google were looking at. Um, we'd go to some developer conferences and see the same usual suspects there. So we had no idea what they were doing. Um, so one, I think one notable thing is that it's okay at Amazon to go take a, a, a risk. It's not a career uh, breaker to go from a big business to a small business or from you know a, a job where you have a lot of headcount to go start to build a new idea and, and invent something. And that's one thing. And then two is that we talked about the working backwards process, especially for something, cloud, the term cloud computing didn't even exist then. And the initial ideas that we had about web services is what we, we called them in, in, in the beginning, we didn't know what the fundamental units were. And, uh, you know, so EC2 is the Elastic Com- Compute Cloud, and that's, um, you know, compute com- you buy compute units of compute power. In the beginning, we thought that was really going to be provisioning, w- which was a-, a problem that we had internally. Uh, teams would write their software, and then they'd wait six or weeks for the hardware to arrive and for people to provision the hardware and then push it out there. It was also hard to also get the right software on each of the computers that you needed and then if the, idea didn't, if the idea didn't take off, reclaiming that hardware so you could send it to someone else was another big heavy lifting project. But So we thought it was going to be provisioning. But there was a journey that we went through. And for AWS, we basically um, wrote documents for about a year and a half and uh, reviewed them. It was, you know, Andy... And whoever the the if it was the compute team or the the storage team, and Jeff and I would be in a room and we'd be re- reviewing documents. Sometimes we wouldn't get past the first page because we realized, hey, there's an issue here that we don't really understand, or we haven't gotten to the, you know, really to the core of the issue or define what what it is for the customer. And um, you know, there and some metaphors just popped up during this time. Where uh, one very powerful one is that. We want to provide the same world-class uh, computing infrastructure to a college student in a dorm room than someone who works at a company like Amazon, and 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 that really clarified things. And you know, the other thing with S3 is, you know, how does S3 fail? Um, you know, you can either have it fail for an hour a year, which is bad if you have hundreds of thousands of businesses relying on it, or if it does have to fail, you know, you can have it <clears throat> fail gracefully. But just in you know one transaction uh, every you know couple million transactions say oh go try again you know that's a, those are two different failure modes and you have to build something very different and uh, we also knew that out going once this thing got out the door it was going to be hard uh, it had to get better as it got bigger 
So you couldn't throw this thing over the fence and then decide what to fix because so many people would be relying on it. It's a much different relationship that you'd have. So just that I think in, the notable thing about AWS is it was an experiment and we, we felt we were in a land rush. We wanted to get out there first. It would by no means uh, ensure success, but it sure would help. But we, we um, stuck true to, well, we don't, haven't really defined, you know, you were using this working backwards process. We haven't really defined what, what we're trying to solve and, and really identified the, the core technical issues. And, the, you know, there was also some astounding engineering work and it you know, advances that uh, the web services team did that went along in the background because we knew sometimes what we wanted to do, but we hadn't figured out how to do it. So just the journey of um, getting a brand new idea and, you know, for a company to be able to say, this is not our core business, but it is something that we have, we think we can do as good as anyone else on the planet. And it's worth, worth trying there were some skeptics inside Amazon and even at the board level about, you know, why, why, why are you doing this when you're still trying to get your retail business uh, working and, and improving on the retail business? You know, Prime had just launched at that time. So, you know, willing to be misunderstood for a long period of time. If you go back and look at, uh, you know, some of the quarterly announcements, Jeff would say, well, we're, we're working on, it was web services and digital uh, and, and, said that for many, many quarters, and those turned out to be two very large pillars of, of the company, but they were started out from, you know, risky ideas. Most companies hadn't made the transition from physical delivery of goods to be a, you know, pure digital player in, in terms of uh, movies, uh, books, and, and, and music also. So that was just another transformation that happened. Happy to go into more detail on it, on any of that. But I think the notable things are, you know, what Andy did, and then also just sticking to the working backwards process, because ultimately you want to solve customer problems. And if you're and and if you solve customer problems, it will work out in the long run. So Jeff um, firmly believes, and he, uh, you know, told us all that in in the in the long term, the interests of customers are perfectly aligned with the interest of shareholders. And so if you do what's right for your customer, it will work out in the long term and you'll build a, a company that you can be proud to tell your grandkids about. Got it. When did, uh, and maybe you, you left before then or got moved to something else, but like, when did, when did you know, or Amazon know that the cloud thing was going to be pretty big? We had, well, you know, we had a suspicion that it was going to be big and, um, uh, and, I think that it was we didn't it wasn't really proven until you know when S3 first launched it it was um it wasn't an overnight uh success but once another service EC2 came with it where you know you weren't you didn't use a storage service and then have to move over to your own data centers to handle something once EC2 and S3 started working in conjunction it was a lot easier to to build some pretty cool applications and you know that was another tenant that we had developed during this working backwards process was that a single service in itself isn't going to be all that useful. You need to have a, a you know a critical mass of services that work together in, in the cloud um, in order to really make uh, larger organizations uh, you know jump on the bandwagon and start using it. So I would say you know after EC2 and um, launched and then you got to see what people did with EC2 and, and S3, um, 
we knew that that rocket ship was going to take off. Yeah. This is where the TAM thing's tricky, right? Because I'm sure the original uh, paper, the TAM was pretty small. <laughs> and, you know, now it's probably like thousands of times bigger than that original TAM anticipated. You know, for, for successes this large, you, you, you know, you can think big. Um, but the total addressable market, we did know that there is going to be a new paradigm on how to build and deploy software. And if we could do it, it's basically the business to business software market, you know, that that's huge. And, and so, so we knew that it was a large number, you know, virtually unconstrained, if you want to think of it that way, in terms of if you can get it right, there's a lot of work. And, you know, even right now, you take a look at the total um, compute power, you know, that, 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 that's going on or the software development, it's still, there's still a lot of uh, runway ahead of AWS. Oh, yeah. And then the other thing, and I don't know where this lands in the principles, but then there's this very unique to Amazon thing. Other people are copying it now, but this whole idea of, you know, Walmart would have taken that that infrastructure and they would have viewed it as this super proprietary kind of a thing that they would use internally, right? Where does that culture of opening it up to external users, where does that come from? It it. I would say the root of it comes from customer obsession. And I'll give you an early example of, of something like this, which is where Amazon was in, you know, owned all of its inventory. And, uh, and so when you went to a detail page, a product page on Amazon, there was only one seller. It was Amazon. There was only one seller on the platform. And it was a controversial issue to say, should we open it up to uh, on the, on that product page to third-party sellers? We had tried an auctions uh, product you know, on a separate tab at the time. I don't know if you remember those. And then there was something called Z shops and turns out oh, yeah. no one went over to that neighborhood because all, all, all the cool kids were over on the product page of uh, uh, detail pages of Amazon. And, uh, and you know, the, the, for instance, you, uh, the head of the retail uh, group or the head of the electronics uh, category would say, are you kidding me? I've done all this work to get my scarce allocation from these vendors, you know, try to get sharp prices on them and try to keep them in stock. And now you're, and, and I've created this great detail page for this electronic item. And now you're going to let any third party sell right uh, inside my store. Um, How, you know, how is this, does this make my job easier? And, uh, and how is this good for Amazon? And, uh, once, you know, and it was Jeff who said, looked at it and said, well, no matter how big Amazon gets, it's still going to be a small per, you know, percentage of overall retail. And, uh, and ultimately, we're in the business of allowing customers to make purchase decisions. So if we don't have the product in stock, um, we want it, you know, we want that we still want the customer to be able to buy that. Or if we don't have the lowest price, we still want them to be able to come to that detail page and conduct a transaction to find out more about this product and, and buy it. And if you want to make that product page to be the best place on the web for that particular item, you have to have multiple sellers. You have to have the best uh, item authority information about that. And yeah, by the way, you're, you're now as the general manager of the electronics group, your job is a little harder. But, you know, it's it making these things, it, it, making your job easy isn't what Amazon is all about. You know, we're trying to solve customer problems and this is the best way to solve the customer problem. So that, you know, I think if you look at it from that point of view, 
then you say, oh yeah, we have to open up our our uh, product pages and you know and, and create this marketplace initiative, which is now you know now sells the owned inventory business on on Amazon, as as, as you guys well know. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's annoying how many stories like that Amazon has of these things that, in hindsight, are enormous successes, like the marketplace. But at the time, like, had to be hugely controversial, difficult decisions. Um, one, uh, you know, as I was reading the book, one of the things that kind of a recurring theme was a lot of these business structures and processes feel like they were really invented to help Amazon scale beyond Jeff, right? Like, uh, you know, uh, to maintain Jeff's high standards. Um, once he couldn't meet every employee personally, we need a bar raiser program for hiring and we need uh, the business principles to sort of indoctrinate everyone in the company. Um, the big news this quarter is all the Jeffs are leaving Amazon. Uh, and so I'm, I'm sort of curious, like, do you believe that all of, uh, all, all of this infrastructure and culture that, that you guys all put in place are going to enable Amazon to sort of keep clicking at the same level, you know, when, uh, when Jeff was like a little more involved uh, as, as he sort of disengages and spends more time on rockets or something, or, or do you think that's going to be an inflection point for Amazon? It's hard to, in my mind, it's hard to still be a day one company when your, your founder retires after 27 years. So, you know, Jeff, it's, he had spent uh, since the time I was working on him, he devoted a whole lot of time to try to instrument the company and encode some of the the knowledges and principles that he, you know, where he wanted to take Amazon and, and make them repeatable processes. You know, it, for, there's no one at Amazon who could say, let's turn around and be competitor focused rather than customer focused. It's just, it's in Amazon's DNA. So first of all, I think Andy, he's, you know, he's the right guy for the job. If, if I had to write the Amazon CEO job description, it would be someone who's steeped in Amazon's culture able to build, you know, large uh, multi-billion dollar businesses and work with small teams, you know, and, and jump in between the two. And bonus points, if you uh, built a business from zero to $10 billion faster than Amazon did. And Andy did all of those, you know, AWS got to $10 billion faster than, you know, Amazon, the, the company. And uh, so I, you know, I think it's the Amazon's in good hands with, with Andy, but I think if you look at the legacy of of what Amazon is and, and Jeff is going to leave, you know, at the end of the day, these hockey pucks and cylinders we have in our kitchen or the two day and delivery is going to seem laughably primitive sometime in, in you know, one day delivery will seem laugh, laughably primitive sometime in the near future. But what is a lasting thing is is really this in, in the invention machine and it's Jeff's term that that he created at Amazon and he was always very upfront about it. You know, he would talk about some of these things about long-term thinking, about, you know, you, re- you read the shareholder letters about separable teams. And, you know, he's been upfront about the working backwards process. So I think that it's, um, these are processes where you don't have to use uh, it, the stick to get people to use them. It is more a carrot approach because once you start using them, you realize this is just a better way of building a bi- and operating a business. You know, you don't have to, once people start writing narratives, if you were to tell them to well, stop that, go dumb it down and use slides to, you know, convey a complex idea, you, they look at you like a deer in headlights, no matter who that person was. So I, I think that there's still a lot of innovation to, to, to come from Amazon and, uh, 
you know, whatever company or initiative uh, Jeff Bezos is working on, it will be very fortunate to have him. But, you know, there's 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 a lot of people at Amazon who will continue to operate and, and tweak and improve this invention machine. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite lines from your book, Colin, was um, you, you talk about how many people say, oh, sure, Amazon was successful, but you have unlimited resources and Jeff Bezos. And and you you and Bill pointed out like, uh, hey, for most of the time we were there, we were heavily resource constrained. That's not not true at all. Um, and, you know, all of these these uh, processes can absolutely work without Jeff. Although if Jeff's available to work on your project, we would both highly recommend him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that, that still holds true. <clears throat> one, uh, one thing that's been interesting, Colin, and, and you've been writing a book, so maybe you haven't seen this, but, but Shopify is really kind of ascending and getting a lot of play as kind of a, you know, an alternative to Amazon. And they talk about arming the rebels and, and this kind of thing. And then there's also a wedge in there in that, Brands don't love Amazon because, you know, Amazon, they love, they want the brands there, but they want to control the price. And there's kind of, I've had brands say to me, it's a love, hate, hate, hate relationship kind of thing. So, so it's going to be this really interesting battle. We, we talk about this on our show a lot. And then recently it was in the press that Bezos was getting more involved in the business uh, to kind of formulate a Shopify strategy. And that was right before he kicked himself upstairs. What, what, you know, but then listening to you think about the customer, it almost seems backwards for someone at Amazon to have an initiative that's kind of like, you know, what are we going to do about this competitor, Shopify? How would you kind of project what do you think they would do and with, with what's going on there? Well, I don't have any firsthand uh, data or, or information to, yeah, give, just to guess. give you here yeah. just to be very clear. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, it does get back to really – if something's worth doing, you first of all have to identify the customer problem that you are solving. And the customer problem isn't to go take over Shopify. And, you know, so it's, it's how can we serve our customers better? Be they third-party sellers, be they, you know, buy, you know, uh, buyers on the site, you know, and, and, and what, how can we organize to solve those problems? And so, you know, that, that's just the way ideas are, are, are developed. I, you know, I will say Amazon does occupy a different place in society than it did, you know, five and 10 years ago. And, you know, some of these things uh, are going to, you know, be worth putting in, in, in the public dialogue. And, you know, that that's part of being a, a company that's, you know, uh, at a half a trillion dollars in, in, in yearly revenue. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I can't predict what's going to go on there, but but you know, Amazon. Whenever there's tough decisions, what people at Amazon do is they fall back onto these fourteen principle leadership principles because that's what they're there for. It's the, it's they're there to make the tough calls, and uh, and so um, I, well, I don't know what they what Amazon will do. I know that after they do it, if you read these leadership principles and then you uh, listen, you know, listen to yourself to say in the back of your mind that the long-term interests of customers and shareholders are completely aligned, it probably will make sense. Okay. I, um, you know, uh, Colin, we are running up on time, but I do uh, have sort of one last, last uh, thread for you. I know uh, the the book is obviously intended to help, help folks adopt some of these best practices from Amazon. And if I have it right, I think you and Bill, um, also consult with some companies and and uh, sort of help them adopt some of these processes. Uh, I'm curious how 
successful or difficult outside entities find some of these things? Like, I'll, I'll give you a personal antidote. Uh, I've hired a lot of ex-Amazonians in my life. Um, and I'm always super excited that I'm going to get these people that, you know, come in and write these like, you know, super detailed six page narratives and stuff. And, and what ends up happening is no, they all do like really crappy PowerPoint because they're all like tired of writing the news. <laughs> um, so I, I like part of me wonders, like, is there some secret sauce in Amazon? Like, are, you know, I, obviously we all believe some of these things can be useful in many other companies, but, but is there a, an endemic advantage in Amazon and in, in cohesively doing all of these things together that make them work better than, than individual bits and bytes do uh, outside of the Amazon sphere? Well, I would say that the, the first two that you'd have to do if, if you don't have them and, you know, some smaller organizations don't is defining who you are and the leadership principles. You know, so the idea is not to copy Amazon's and you need to come up with your own about who you are. And then, um, the second part is that bar raiser process, the hiring process is how do you vet new people coming into your organization? Because you want to, you, the new people you want coming in, you want them to reinforce your culture. And if you're not deliberate about what your culture is and how you decide, is this person going to reinforce my culture or change it? Um, it your culture will change because you're going to get a culture as your company grows. It just is, you, it's your choice if it's whether the one you want it to be or whether it will become based, you know, whatever it will become based on the new people who are coming in. If you go from five to 20 people and you don't have a deliberate hiring process with the leadership principles, that's how you get people who say it's, it's just not like it used to be last year. So the, those two things I would say you, you have to do and, you, and um, it, you know, in order to stay true to your roots. The other ones you can, um, you, I would not recommend doing them all at once. I think some of them are easy, but some are, are journeys. So no, you don't have to do them all at once, but where we've seen it work in organizations and, and well, I guess where we've seen it not work is if the the head of the organization, you know, the CEO, or if it's a large company, if it's a, you know, a division, um, if they're not on board, it's probably not going to work. You know, if, if, Someone says, "Hey, I'm going to write narratives for the group," and and then the 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 VP or the CEO says, "Yeah, that's great, but just give me a PowerPoint when um, when you're done with your narratives, and then we'll make the decision." You know, that's it's probably not going to work. So I think you have to buy into some of these and principles and processes, and then give them a chance to work at at the right level. Uh, that makes total sense, Colin. And that's going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Um, as always, if folks have comments or questions, they are welcome to uh, follow up with us on our Facebook page or on Twitter. Um, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we sure would appreciate it if you'd jump on iTunes and uh, give us that five-star review. Colin, we really appreciate you taking time out of your your busy schedule to uh, walk us through the book. Uh, we strongly encourage readers uh, to go not only buy the book, but read it like Jason and I have. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. You got four thumbs up from us. Um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, Amazon carries the book, so that's the logical place to look. Uh, and then if folks want to find you online, do you pontificate about things or are you uh, big on Twitter or Snapchat or Insta or any of those things? We have, we have a website, workingbackwards.com, so all one word. And, you know, that's a good place to go to, to branch out from there. Awesome. We really appreciate having, uh, having you on the show. Thanks again for having me. Uh, we really enjoyed it. And until next time, happy commercing. 
You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 